they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like squirtle and cake rule. Cold blood is with the Stromsky. I'm a boss. Flip the coin, toss it, straws. I'm out of loss. How my brains get busted, slinging letters into couplets. Muck up the subjects, paragraph the punches. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about fear and anxiety. I've been thinking about the fact that every single night before my child goes to sleep, he asks me, are we safe? We're safe, right? And I pause for just the slightest moment before I answer, yes, we're safe. And we live in probably one of the safest spots in the country, maybe even the world. I've been thinking about Oprah Winfrey and Deepak Chopra and their meditation series, the program they sell probably millions of copies of to reduce anxiety and stress, and why so many of us live in a constant state of fear. My guest today is Barry Glasner, author of nine books, including The Culture of Fear, Why Americans Are Afraid of the Wrong Things, Crime, Drugs, Minorities, Teen Moms, Killer Kids, Mutant Microbes, Plane Crashes, Road Rage, and so much more. Glasner is a professor of sociology at Lewis and Clark College. His articles have been published in the American Sociological Review, the American Journal of Psychiatry, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, just to name a few. So welcome, Mr. Glasner. Thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Thank you for inviting me. So clearly our topic is going to be fear. We're going to spread a little more and then hopefully eradicate it in in the same hour. I want to start with um, some of the positive aspects of fear because certainly there is a point in time when when fear is is valuable. Yeah, I mean, fear is valuable when you're actually in danger and you need to respond quickly. (laughs) So going back to what you mentioned uh, at the beginning, about uh, your your child and and um, reassuring your child, uh, and uh, it's absolutely correct that not only where you live, but almost everywhere in the United States, Americans are living in about the safest period in human history, uh, and in the safest place, uh, as far as we know from recorded history, and so you know the question is how does it come about that there's so many fears in the air? and that so many of them are unfounded. And if I'm confronted by a lion, I should be fearful, or a bear in the forest. But even in those cases, you see, if I react with, in some kind of panicked or irrational way, I put myself in more danger. The difficulty with most of the fears and scares that we're confronted with from politicians and the media and all sorts of others that we'll talk about in the course of this conversation is that they are talking about uh, scares that are for their benefit, primarily for their objectives, and that are greatly exaggerated. And so to go to your basic question, fear is useful when it's based on something legitimate that it's appropriate to respond to with a fearful reaction, which is normally to protect ourselves uh, and to protect ourselves efficiently and promptly. And there certainly are circumstances where that's the case, but most of the fears and scares that are being promoted um, are not like that. It's interesting because even in that moment that you describe, it's a different kind of fear. 
because it's one of more alert, right? We really probably aren't fearful because we weren't anticipating seeing the bear or the, the lion. We're going to have a reaction that's going to sort of alert all our senses, you know, survival, survival, react. Um, but it really is a different sort of experience than the fears that we'll be talking about and you talk about in the book and that my son experiences at night, which is a, an apprehension of something that isn't happening at the time. That's right. And so I think the question is that we really need to focus on, all of us, is where are we getting this? Where is this coming from and who's benefiting from it? And a lot of the explanation, I believe, from a long time uh, looking at this uh, area, is that there's immense power and money that uh, awaits people out there, individuals, organizations, who can tap into what I like to refer to as Americans' moral insecurities, which is a lot of what I think they're going after. And so if you think about it, who's doing this? Well, uh, by means of fear-mongering, politicians sell themselves to voters. In recent months, that has probably been especially evident to folks, and we can talk about that um, during the course of our conversation. And there are many others. It's not just politicians. And part of what happens is that you get in this feeding frenzy between various groups that is beneficial to each of those groups. So TV news, cable news, they sell themselves and their programs to viewers in large measure through fear and through uh, scary reporting. And then that, and they of course, in many cases, are responding to what's coming from the political realm and then you have advo advocacy groups of all sorts, all, so all political persuasions from left to right and in between, and for every kind of issue, from you know, child abduction to the environment uh, to uh, pro-gun, anti-gun, and so forth. And they sell their memberships. They raise money in large measure by many, many of them by way of fear. You know, I don't know what... what the solicitations you receive online and in the mail look like, but um, what mine look like are very scary. Uh, something horrible is happening, and you better give us some money because we're dealing with it. Uh, and then it goes on from there. I mean, part of the issue here is that we have so many groups and individuals who benefit from promoting these exaggerated fears and scares, right? You have quacks who sell treatment. They don't necessarily look like quacks. <laughs> you know, they can look like um, very appropriate kinds of, of enterprises. You have lawyers who sell class action lawsuits. All you got to do is look at the ads for those law firms. It will be pretty evident that they're doing it on fear. Um, one of my favorite examples, actually, <laughs> is some people would consider a pretty minor one, but I think it makes the point, and that's soap makers who sell antibacterial soaps and hand wipes and all that kind of stuff, right? Sometimes those are useful. Uh, but if your listeners get nothing out of this conversation other than this, here's, here's a good takeaway. Uh, you don't need to pay extra for antibacterial soaps unless you work in a medical environment. Uh, <laughs> you're not going to get any cleaner or safer than using a regular soap, and you're going to be hurting the environment. Uh, you're going to be adding to bacterial resistance. 
and there's no reason to do it. Right, hurt, hurting the environment and hurting your own health and the health of, of humanity down the road. And I want to get back to that a little bit later in the show about the consequences. Once we've sort of defined define the problem, mm-hmm. the consequences, unintended and sometimes intended, of, of this um, pushing of fear. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, and, you know, that one, antibacterial soaps, is a good example. Uh, and, and, and this happens in almost every case. So this is perhaps not as common where, where you are as where some of your listeners are and some of your online listeners are. But another example is realtors who sell homes in gated communities, right? Uh, or in, in some cities, high-security uh, apartment buildings uh, and condo buildings. And, and so the, going to the two points you were just making at the same time, right? On the one hand, the existence of those says there's something to be afraid of. And if you talk about the children who live in that community, going back to where you started the conversation, every time they come home, they are reminded implicitly that things must be really dangerous out there. We live behind gates. And a place where this is becoming very rampant, uh, has already, and getting worse, is schools. Many schools throughout the country now look like and feel like high-security prisons. Uh, you know, there's just been so much paranoia about that. And we should talk about that at some point in our conversation, where that came from, which I think is instructive and interesting. Well, well let's talk about it now. I hadn't planned it, but let's, because it was funny you said that. Just this morning, I was thinking about intentionally creating a sense of fear, and then also unintentionally. I was at my daughter's school conference yesterday, and I was in the girls' restroom in the middle school, and I saw a notice, and I went and went and looked, and it was on every single door of each stall, and it also posted on the wall. And it was a great organization. They were advertising their um, helpline, 24-hour helpline. But when you look at it, it was really propagating fear. It just had line after line of domestic abuse, sexual abuse, bullying, drug abuse, you know, it ha- the list went on. And I, you know, when I first saw it, I thought, oh, it's kind of startling to be here and, and see all those things. And so let's talk about that now. Yeah, let's, let's talk about a couple of aspects of that. The example you just gave is a really good one in this way, I think. All of the young people in that, in that school who are looking at this, are now told that there are all these things they need to be afraid of. And that's scary. You know, then we wonder why children and adolescents have so many anxiety issues or depression or other um, psychological issues. Well, you know, if you can't go to the bathroom without reading that scary list, uh, might have something to do with it. Now, then we could ask, okay, but they need to know about those things. Well, I think that's not so clear, but let's just, assume for the sake of the discussion that they do. That's not the way to do it, right? <laughs> you do it in classes or you do it in special sessions uh, and so forth. If the purpose of, the, of those kinds of postings is to tell the, the children or the adolescents that they have um, resources, great. I'm all for it. Do it. <laughs> but do that, right? So instead say if you have found yourself in a scary situation or this is happening to you, here's who to call, you have resources, or here's where you go in the school for that. That then um, sends a positive message 
um, and it should be reassuring in some cases, right? So, so there are other ways to do this to get to get the same outcome. Is the first thing I would say. Second, though, goes back to the other question you're asking: Where does all this come from? Well, a big part of that answer requires us to do a little uh, uh, flashback. So, if you'll just bear with me for a minute. If we look back, where did schools become such high security zones? Where did all this come from? Well, it came from a period that um, your child is certainly too young for to remember. Many of your listeners probably are, and others will remember very well. And that was the school violence of the late 1990s, mid-1990s, late 1990s, into the beginning part of this of this century. And what happened then is really instructive for understanding how we are where we are with schools and, and in other cases. And what happened during that period was that, in fact, youth violence went way down. But politicians and journalists uh, managed to give the impression that just about every young American male was a potential mass murderer. Uh, and this is instructive also because this is what keeps happening. So it's not just in this case. What was going on was a steep downward trend in youth crime during this period. So the actual statistics, the reality, um, should have been comforting for people. But the fear mongers recast them. Uh, and that was a period where news magazines were very, very influential. Newsweek, for example, had uh, a headline the lull before the storm. Uh, and there was just lots of talk about how uh, youth crime was out of control and we had to do something about it. Uh, and as a result of that scaremongering, uh, Americans were very confused. Uh, so there, there was a survey done in the late 1990s of Americans, asked adult Americans who were asked to estimate how much of the crime, violent crime, people under 18 commit. And Americans believe that it was about half of all crime when the actual number was about 13%. Big difference between half and 13%. And the way they came to be misinterpreting this and the way, and the reason I'm spending some time on this with you, and the way and the reason that we have schools that look like prisons now is that during this period, there were some high-profile attacks at schools. They got tremendous attention. But when you actually look at what happened, the one that most people remember is Columbine, and I'll talk about that in a second. If you actually look at what happened during this period when there was so much attention and the notion that schools were so unsafe and all these things were going on, uh, actually violence-related deaths at schools in the U.S. had dropped to a record low. In the year where there was the most attention, there were 19 deaths out of 54 million children. That's horrible. Every one of those deaths is horrible, but not something that people should sit around worrying about and then turning schools into these armed facilities uh, and lockdown facilities for decades to come. Um, during the height of this, only one in 10 schools reported any serious crime. <clears throat> and that's uh, been, by the way, very consistent since then. But there was tons of talk about it, see? Um, 
And, and so then you have these lasting effects for years and years to come. Well, let's talk a little bit about what, what you just mentioned is, and we'll go back to sort of who benefits and, and maybe why and why so much in our culture, but the tactics, because something you mentioned there just briefly was there were just these isolated events, and yet they were then advertised as being pervasive. That's right. That's right. So if we step back uh, several steps and ask what, how, how do fear mongers do their work? Okay. What you just mentioned is a big part of the answer. So let me talk about that and another aspect that's very closely related. They do it on volume, mostly. Um, you know, if you if you hear the ads for discount stores, right, or <clears throat> big car dealerships, how do we do it? We do it on volume, and that's the same way that fear mongers work. Uh, local TV news is perhaps the most evident example of this in most parts of the country, in almost any city in the U.S. Uh, there's going to be scary news stories early on in every local newscast. Um, in fact, there's an expression that uh, producers uh, of these uh, TV, local TV newscasts use openly. Uh, the motto is, if it bleeds, it leads. And so even when crime rates uh, are low or going down, it's not going to seem that way to regular viewers of local TV news. They're, they're not likely to know that, and uh, they're, they're likely to feel that their communities are crime-ridden. Um, and going back to another thing you said, that ha these things have effects. So studies of, of older people, of elderly people, uh, who find uh, consistently that those who watch a lot of TV news, are afraid to go outside, and they end up restricting themselves uh, unnecessarily in their homes. <clears throat> these fear-mongering campaigns, or whatever you want to call them, these, these fear-mongering activities, are profitable for some. They increase ratings, they keep people watching local TV news, and they're harmful to others, in this case, um, older citizens. So there, you get it every night on there, and that's just one example. The Internet, of course, you can do it any time of the day about all kinds of things, right? But volume is only part of it. Another big part is what you started off saying, uh, and that is taking isolated incidents and blowing them out of proportion. Or the way I like to put it is uh, christening isolated events as trends, taking something that happens seldom and making it sound like something that happens frequently um, or that, that, that's a growing trend. And in addition to that, you mentioned just a, a quick statistic, but the manipulation of statistics, you go quite a bit into depth in that. And I thought it was so interesting that they might say there was a 50% rise, but that might mean there were two people instead of one. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, uh, there was a, it's a great book out there. Um, it's a classic called How to Lie with Statistics, um, not by me, that, uh, that talks about something like that. If I recall correctly, the author's name is Joel Best, I think. Uh, but anyway, that, yes, there, um, there are many ways to do that. And it, uh, and it also seems that there's not um, often 
a correction when there's been uh, misinformation. I mean, even in these cases, maybe where it wasn't intentional, but where something was blown way out of proportion, and they don't come back around often in the press and say, oh, you know what, there was an error in that reporting. Or even if they do, it isn't at the same volume um, or the same consistency as it right. as the original story had been. And so the majority of people don't ever get to hear that message that actually that, that it wasn't true. Yeah, that's right. Uh, what, what, what happens is the, the exaggerated number or the exaggerated report is out there and it lives on in people's memory or what is often the case, it keeps getting repeated because it's never been corrected or even, even if it has been corrected. Uh, it doesn't matter because the report lives on. This is particularly true online, of course, where um, you know these sorts of things just circulate forever, and it doesn't matter uh, if they're corrected. Uh, and that's one of my major beefs, actually, um, with uh, um, the, the news media and with politicians. It's one thing to do this, but it's another thing not to then correct it or put things in perspective again. Um, so, you know, going back to the example we were talking about before, for instance, when the media take isolated incidents during the period I was talking about before, um, it was about school violence, and make it sound like this is happening everywhere, you lose all sense of proportion. A big answer to, to the kind of larger question you've been asking, you know, how do we self-correct for this or what do we do? about it is you have to have a sense of proportion uh, for any of these things. So we can talk about that in a variety of cases, but in the one I'm mentioning right now, uh, less than one in a hundred homicides of school-aged children occurs in or around schools, right? So I don't want to put you on the spot. So let me just tell you, when I give talks to groups, I ask people, then if it's one in a hundred of, uh, of, of tragic losses of, of young people, homicides of young people, if one in a hundred occurs in or around schools, where do the other 99 occur? And what I find interesting is many people, no matter what group I'm talking to, just have blank looks on their faces. But there's always one person or, or a few people who know the answer right away, and I sometimes talk with them after the talk to see how come. Where most homicides of school-aged children occurs is in homes. That's sad. Phenomenally sad. That's it's sad, with- right? And it's a big part of, of the, the whole picture as far as even the tactics of this as far as misdirection. Yeah, that's right. And we should talk about that per se. But that's right. So just talking about the reporting for a minute, Um, You were talking about correcting these things. Something I like to say whenever I talk to uh, people involved in news production or reporters or so forth is, um, you know, where these things are really happening is in homes, and there's a a big story to be told, you know. Uh, Sure, it's not going to come on your 
police radio in exactly the same way, but it's going to be on your police radio. You know what I mean? Where they chase a story, right? You know, there's there's been a shooting, so they all go out and follow and, it. And why do you think that is as far as the reporter and also the viewer or listener, as far as it's somehow more... I don't know, comfortable or something to focus on the crazy individual rather than pursuing the actual problems? Because problems, serious problems, entrenched problems, are complicated. That's also why politicians go to these others, right? So if you are fighting an invisible, or let's say if you're fighting a a mythical dragon, it's easy to slay the dragon. If you're fighting a real dragon or a real serious problem, it's a lot harder, right? So sure, we can make schools safe by putting up all these bars and security systems because they were already. But if you want to deal with the 99 out of 100 homicides that happen to young children, you've got to deal with all kinds of serious issues that have to do with mental health that have to do with availability of guns, the thing you're never allowed to talk about in in this country. You have to deal with issues of poverty and resources, complicated things, right? Uh, And if you are a reporter, especially for um, television, you have little time. You do these little exciting reports and on to the next one. If you're a politician, you want to gain votes, by saying something that grabs people and gets them to the voting booth. These more complicated matters don't, but that's where the real issues are, right? You had mentioned um, earlier in the conversation uh, the subtitle of my book, right? The title is The Culture of Fear, but the subtitle is Why Americans Are Afraid of the Wrong Things. And that's what we're getting into right now. There are very serious issues, like the one we're talking about here, Uh, but they don't work well for the media we're talking about, by and large, or for the advocacy groups, for that matter, right? Or for the people who are selling homes in gated communities and so forth. But if we want to make a difference, we got to look at those. I had recently heard an interview with the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, and the Dalai Lama said, we are drunk with fear, And I'm wondering, one, if you would agree, and two, how much you think of that is connected with um, a society of of capitalism. I mean, as I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking, well, I think it worked pretty well in China, um, where they were a communist society. Um, And so we may not get to exactly what's causing it, but before we dig a little deeper into that, I want to look at some of the examples you had mentioned to get people thinking about them. Um, during this rest of the conversation. And that was, you know, the, in the 90s, the, the postal workers, um, Halloween candy, um, that the elderly were being uh, abused in, in a regular uh, manner by either their caretakers or relatives. Um, maybe if you might just pick one or two of those examples that you talked about in depth in the book, just to really lay the groundwork for what we're really talking about here. Sure, sure. And you're right. I think, you know, we wouldn't have time to go through all of them, and some of them um, aren't as current as others. Um, let's talk but about But I think one. that's good that they aren't yeah. current, because for me, that was really yeah. enlightening. It's like, oh, yeah, I used to be really afraid oh. of that. <laughs> what am I afraid oh, no. of now? Now oh, no, he's the boogeyman. Oh, and that's exactly right. That's a very, very important point. Something I like to point out to people, you know, I'm often asked, 
okay, so how does an individual kind of get over this or or put up a you know self protecting way of thinking or whatever and, and that's one of the, the main ways to do it is to say, okay, let's look back at the last one of these or the one five years ago or twenty years ago that was occupying everybody's attention, right? And see how silly it was. One of my favorite examples of that was pregnant teenagers, which I devote a lot of attention to in the book, I think is really instructive this way and an interesting story anyway. There was a period in this country, I'm not kidding, where every serious problem you could imagine was blamed on pregnant teenage girls including the national debt, including national security, including crime problems, everything that you could imagine, that I could imagine at least. And not, I don't mean in some peripheral way. I mean major um, media outlets, respected politicians, um, presidential candidates. And if we look back at that now, I think most of us have to say, come on, that's ridiculous. You know, <laughs> There weren't very many of these pregnant adolescent girls. They had no resources. I mean, it's just absurd. And so those, looking back at those kinds of examples, I think helps a lot. <clears throat> Another one uh, I would point out and answer your question is one that recurs. This comes back time after time. <laughs> it's a staple. And that is kidnap children. So I really think we should talk a little about that. Do we have time for a minute? Well, to do no, that? we absolutely do. I was hoping you'd pick road rage. I <laughs> a good example too. We we absolutely do. Let's just take a quick break, and then we will come back and and talk a little bit more about about those topics. This is Ellie Newman on that got me thinking, and I'm here talking with Barry Glasner, and we are talking about the culture of fear. This is KDPI 88.5 FM Ketchum. We're back. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm speaking with Barry Glasner. We were just talking a little bit about some of the fears that have been uh, propagated over the years uh, that maybe now we, we look back and, and find are silly, but at the time they certainly were not considered silly and probably believed by a majority of the population to be true. And I was mentioning a, a, that I think an example that's an important one because it keeps recurring, it just keeps popping up over time, is uh, kidnap children, um, child abduction. And uh, one way to understand how powerful this is is that after 9-11, uh, 2001, uh, right before that, I should say, right before the attacks, uh, this was all over the news. If you looked at cable TV news, they were going on and on, uh, and print media also, and politicians, about uh, kidnapped children. Then came a truly horrifying um, event, something people really did need to pay attention to that was truly fearful, uh, worthy of being fearful, uh, and the country's attention uh, shifted. But it was only about six months later that all the noise about kidnapped children, child abduction returned. And so, for example, in, 20, uh, in, the, in the summer of 2002, I did a little study, uh, just uh, checking how long you, you could go uh, and watching cable TV news without seeing one of these stories, and it was less than 30 minutes. 
And what the fearmongers were saying was uh, the typical way that this fear gets going. Two parts. So they would take an isolated incident and treat it as a trend, something we talked about. Uh, And it would be a very dramatic one and a truly horrible one. Whenever a child is kidnapped, especially if they uh, then never return uh, or clearly have been murdered, it's horrifying. It's awful. Um, And it should it should appall and upset all of us. What it means beyond that, though, is another question. And so the second thing that's done is to say uh, that this is this is a, a really big danger. People need to pay attention to. Uh, and so Bill O'Reilly, who's still around, as you know, has been around a long time. Um, on his show during that period on Fox News, he spoke of 100,000 abductions of children by strangers every year in the U.S. Okay, 100,000. Actually, there were 115 that year, according to a very reliable source, the U.S. Office of Juvenile Justice and, and Delinquency Prevention. 115 is a far cry from 100,000. And it matters. Uh, Your child is, is in most places, at most times, is considerably more likely to to die or to have serious lifelong injuries from uh, a biking accident from not wearing a helmet. Right? And I should tell you, I don't pick examples like that just at random. I pick them because that's something that can really make a difference and that people don't pay a lot of attention to. Certainly, you're not going to turn on the TV news and see day after day stories about children being seriously injured or dying um, from uh, not wearing a bicycle helmet. Okay? And, And it matters because if parents are sitting around worrying about their children being snatched off the playground... Uh, it's not healthy for them. It's not healthy for the child. And to go back to something you mentioned before, it misdirects their attention from real dangers, right? Uh, misdirection is a big part of how fear mongers ply their trade. Uh, for any of your listeners who aren't familiar with the source of that term, it's kind of it's, it's important. It's used a lot these days. Um, misdirection is a magician's term, actually. Uh, you know, so if I want to make a coin disappear from my right hand, I need to get you to look at my left hand for a second uh, while I get rid of the coin. Uh, and by the way, it's used in, in uh, big magic tricks too, which I think is important since a lot of these scares look big, right? And they're about big issues. Uh, when stage magicians in the old days would make elephants disappear from the stage in vaudeville, they do the same thing. Uh, they create a great great big, a lot of smoke, or they would create a big distraction so everybody looked at the back of the auditorium while they got rid of the elephant. The old bait-and-switch tactic. Yeah, and misdirection, misdirection. works that way, uh, and, it, and it's a big deal. Uh, so the misdirection is from the real dangers. You know, I mentioned bike helmets because that's something that individuals and parents can deal with. But the misdirection toward things like child abduction are also from very serious problems that children in this country, many face, 
like crumbling schools, like inadequate nutrition, you know, um, really, really big elephant-sized problems. Well, and, and the, it runs a spectrum, right? I was thinking about um, my frustration with not being able to find a mattress that isn't doused in proven cancer-causing chemicals um, when people rarely smoke or smoke in bed and don't wear polyester. And yet we all still are being affected in a de- detrimental way by something that was a problem and maybe wasn't even a problem statistically uh, in the 1950s. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, you know, I don't want to say much about that because I haven't studied, and I'm always very careful. Oh yeah, no, no. Yeah, but, and right. and but it's something you have studied that's at the complete mm-hmm. opposite end of the spectrum, with the focus on um, crime, and we've got a hundred billion dollars spent on the prison system when we aren't looking at maybe poverty and the other actual correlations with gun violence and child abuse that may be more strongly connected with crime? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, fear of crime, let me, let, me, let me say first, is a staple in this country uh, for political campaigns. So in this past presidential election, there's been a lot of attention to it, and we should talk for a minute about that. But it's nothing new. Politicians have run on fear of crime repeatedly for decades. It's a staple in in this country. Uh, It used to be that it was uh, focused especially in local elections, uh, you know, like mayoral elections and gubernatorial elections and state senators and things like that. It's become now for national um, elections very much so. And, you know, we're we're just beginning... Uh, to reckon with the consequences of this kind of fear-mongering and the fear-mongering about another staple, uh, drug use and drug abuse. Um, And the results are profound. We have half a million nonviolent offenders uh, incarcerated today. That's about 10 times the number in 1980. It's very, very expensive. And it's also very, very discriminatory. Uh, the vast majority of these people are African Americans and Latinos, even though the rates of drug abuse and sales, for example, are roughly identical between different races and ethnicities. So just to take that one aspect, I mean, the the so-called war on drugs costs the federal government a lot of money. Last time I checked, about $15 billion a year. And, And that's just the federal government. Local governments, if you add them all up, it's a lot more. For them, it's probably about twenty twenty-five billion for all of them. So it is very expensive, and you know. So we've got to ask. Um, I think you know who benefits from from that, and it's in part the politicians who win elections that way, uh, and continue governing that way, right? And uh, you know, we now have a president who very much ran on that and continues to. You know, President Trump talks all the time about the American carnage, referring to crime. And uh, the fact is that violent and property crimes have been declining for about two decades. It's just the reality. And they're way below the rates uh, one and two decades ago. You know, and again, there's certainly exceptions. And politicians make great use of that. 
uh, you know, you can find places where the crime rate um, has spiked in some major cities. It, it def- homicides definitely spiked. Um, but even there, the larger reality is they're below the peak in the 1980s and 1990s, even in those places, right? Um, so, you know, we're going to spend a ton of money uh, on, again, an issue that is very good for those who, who use it to their advantage um, and very bad for people who get locked up, very bad for taxpayers. And again, those resources that are then going to um, help us decide this false fear aren't going to the issues that maybe are actually real. Oh, that's always the problem, you see. There's, although people somehow don't get this somehow <laughs> when, they're, when they're in the midst of, of, of being afraid of these things, there's a limited amount of money. I mean, you, you know, you can keep printing more and spending more um, on, on all these kinds of things, but they're not going to places where they could make a big difference. And if you're talking about um, youth and adolescents, there's no question what it is. Uh, in the immediate term, it's dealing with uh, nutrition issues um, uh, that are widespread and hunger issues that are widespread and with quality schools, availability of schooling and education. Uh, and, and not just in terms of, of, of uh, teachers and instruction, but the, the physical buildings in which uh, young people are studying. And, uh, you know, you can go on from there. <laughs> But spending serious money in those areas would make a big, big difference. Well, and I'm wondering, too, if it's a bit endemic of our culture. You know, I think you talked about the schools quite a bit. And I think of that we have nearly a million per year, 20% boys and 10% of girls diagnosed with um, some form of disorder needing Ritalin. And that the idea of of this disorder didn't exist when I was a child, and yet now we have that many people being diagnosed with it. And so the ramifications of even creating a quick fix solution to something that once that's been been created as a problem um, then creates its own pro- real problem. Oh, it absolutely does. There's no question about it. Um, let's mention another one, uh, because I like to always make clear to folks uh, that I am an equal opportunity uh, critic of fear-mongering, uh, and anyone who reads my book will, will see that very quickly. We've just been talking about a bunch that um, uh, you know, conservatives and the political right um, um, uh, talk a lot about. Uh, the one you just mentioned reminds me of one that liberals and the left love that has had the same effect. Um, lately, some on the right have gotten into this too, which is very scary, actually, and, and true, truly scary. But anyway, that's vaccines. You know, the scares about childhood vaccines uh, have big effects. So, you know, when you look at the research, uh, the studies document pretty clearly that when parents refuse immunization in particular communities, uh, there's a significant increase in the number of cases of these serious illnesses, specifically uh, most of the research is on, on whooping cough. And so what you, know, what you find is that health officials have to deal with all kinds of new problems because of these scares about vaccines. 
um, you know, you get what's called, you, you start losing what's called herd resistance. I'm sorry, herd immunity, where the number of immunized people, uh, you know, is large, then even those who have not been vaccinated are safe when they come in, in contact with, with an infected person. But when you lose uh, herd immunity in a particular community or more widely, you got serious problems. And there is no question from the scientific research, the medical research, about uh, vaccines for children. So, um, you know, it's not one part of the political spectrum that gets into these things. It's part, it's part of the point. But the bigger point is being afraid of the wrong things has big consequences, whether it's financial, whether it's passing laws that um, are expensive to um, uh, enact and don't protect people very well, or whether it's in, the, in areas of health uh, and, and uh, well-being. I want to talk a little bit in the last segment of the show about what's changed since you wrote the book. Um, what, are, what are the fears du jour? I was kind of laughing this morning because I was like, oh, it's come full circle. When I was a kid, we were afraid of the Russians, and now it seems to be back to the Russians again. Um, but in, in seriousness, what, what are the, the main um, issues you feel right now that people are focusing on as false fears? I think the big change that happened, uh, it was gradual. But it started after 9-11-2001. If you look prior to that, the talk, or you could say that the narrative at the time was what you might call a sick society narrative. And that's one where the villains were domestic. We talked a little earlier about a good example of that, you know, um, young American males shooting up schools. Um, inner-city youths, and so forth. Uh, So the villains were domestic. The cause was some kind of creeping sickness in in American society. There were different explanations for where that came from. Then what happened was this attack, which was very serious, um, and the focus shifted. Right after 9-11, it didn't make any sense to go after some of those old boogeymen, right? When when it was young American males who were protecting the country overseas, who were uh, the firefighters who went into the World Trade Center, right? uh, couldn't really talk about them that way anymore. The attack had come from outside, and gradually then over time, it shifted to this this new narrative where now, instead of being domestic, the villains are foreign, and the heroes now have changed as well. So the heroes now are people who can somehow protect the population from these foreign invaders. And what you said is right. You only have to go back a few decades to the last time we did this, it was and it was about uh, you know uh, attacks by uh, the Russians, uh, which you know for people old enough, it's kind of odd to see the Russians being involved in the ways they've been in recent months and th- thought about in the ways they have in recent months. But be that as it may, 
now the shift is toward foreign invaders who are almost always portrayed um, as Muslim. Uh, and then you get the same kind of thing as before, right, where there's huge discrimination and all kinds of activity against uh, the, the, the new group that's considered scary and dangerous. And on it goes, right? <laughs> these, these things just continue with the new narrative uh, with new villains and new types of heroes. And do you feel like there's been a major shift in media, or is that also a, a false sense? Um, when I was reading your book, I thought you had a few examples where 2020 had given some um, misinformation, and I thought, okay, well, 2020, like, they're a little bit fantastic in the way they present things, but then you said mentioned something in the New York Times, and I thought, okay, now what? You know, if we can't trust the New York Times, where can we get our news, and, and what can we trust? Right, and I, I want to be clear about that, so thank you for asking. I'm not uh, anti-journalist. Journalist. I'm pro-journalist. My own background is journalism. I worked for ABC News. My undergraduate degree, one of them is in journalism. Um, so I'm very pro-journalist. But yeah, we have to know how to read these things. <laughs> well, and to determine uh, who's individuals. a journalist as well, right? Because with the proliferation of the fake news, I, a friend of mine was telling me they'd recently heard some excerpts from the fake news convention. They've got a really good name for it, but I can't remember what it was um, for the, the convention they throw. Um, but the, the sort of attitude of these people who are involved in putting the fake news out there, that they were really proud of themselves and that they were often putting out fake news that wasn't even something that was in alignment with their personal beliefs. And it, it gave you a sense it was almost like a video game or a game on social media where the idea was just to get as many likes as possible and many as many eyes as mm -hmm. possible, to ruffle as many feathers as possible. But there was no responsibility being taken for the potential consequences of the action. Yeah, so I, I have a little different perspective on that. Um, and that is, uh, you know, I, I think there's absolutely fake news is a real phenomenon we should all be concerned about. It's not essentially a new thing. So if you think about a lot of what we've been talking about this, this hour and what I write about in the book, um, you know, I don't know if you would call it fake news exactly, but, you know, I gave an example a few minutes ago. If you're covering incessantly child abductions and saying there are 100,000, when they're 115. Uh, I don't know if we want to call that fake news. <laughs> well, it, well but, it is fake news. And I mean, that's yeah, the, you know, the right. irony there, right? That here, this fake news is the same false fear <laughs> the other things we're talking yeah. about. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. So uh, what I see is different is that it goes back to something you were asking. <clears throat> the media has changed, right? Literally, the media has changed. So you don't have any more what I wrote about in the first edition of the book. There's a more current one that, that, that's out now where I write about some of the newer ones. Newsweek and Time Magazine aren't a big deal anymore, okay? Um, and there are news sites online uh, that are, for example. Uh, cable, there's, there have been changes in cable news, although that's been around a long time. Um, also, what really, I think, matters about the, some of the some of the uh, new technology, if you will, or the technology that's used a lot, uh, is that when these fear-mongering uh, stories or accounts uh, come up, 
they can circulate very fast with no correction, no potential for correction, and be seen in a very dramatic way, by which I mean if you have an alert on your smartphone or if you are a little more old-fashioned, right, and you, you, you go online or you, you look at links that are sent to you in email or on your Facebook feed, it's instantaneous, and then you move on to the next one, <laughs> right? That contrast that with an earlier era than I wrote about, because it, you know, just go back, whatever I don't know what is it now, fifty years, sixty years, maybe less, where most people got their news from the daily newspaper, came out once a day, right? They may have had some from TV news, but the local TV news at that point was very different than now. And that's it, okay? And if you contrast that with the constant bombardment of scary stories, it's a very different environment in which we're living. I think that is a real change. Uh, And I think has a lot to do with why this culture of fear has grown and intensified so much uh, in in the last few decades, uh, for sure. And I don't research, it's hard enough for me to understand American society in these regards, so I don't do comparative research. I don't know, you know, how it is, I, I, I don't know in, in, in any systematic way how this works in certain other cultures. But when I travel, it sure seems to me that those places that have a similar sort of media environment that we have look pretty similar in these regards to what we've been talking about this hour. And those that don't, don't. You know, if you go to parts of the world where people are not getting these updates on their on their phones all the time and they're not saturated in a cable um, news environment and all of that, <clears throat> The discussion is somewhat different. And again, I haven't studied that systematically, so I'm, I'm cautious about saying it. But what I know for real, for certain, is that in this country, that those changes in the media environment mean that we are just constantly seeing these scary stories and not getting correctives. So now I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> because... You know, we've we've established very well that that we have a strong culture of fear uh, developed in our society. It's potentially now even more profitable, and more it can be more easily spread and less easily corrected. So, what are the uh, first steps for a solution that you see? Well, let me say first for individuals, it's to know that you're in that environment. And, and self-correct, okay? Uh, so when I see a scary story, I start looking at it as a scary story. That may seem simple, but try it. <laughs> Ask this simple question. If somebody's telling you something frightening, ask whose advantage it is, if you believe it. Why are they telling this? What do they get out of it? And if and if, if you start answering that, you'll go a long way. They're trying to sell me a product. They're trying to justify some um, 
legislation they're passing, uh, whatever it may be. They want me to send money to their advocacy group. That goes a long way. Secondly, I will I point out, we've talked a lot in this conversation about two ways that fear mongers do their work, right? <clears throat> Misdirection and treating isolated incidents as trends. When you see something like this, ask those questions right straight away. Is this really a trend? Or are they taking an isolated incident or a few of them uh, that truly are scary or upsetting and making them look like trends? And always ask, where are they misdirecting my attention? If they weren't talking about this, what might we be talking about or focusing on in the same kind of area um, or a different area? Uh, those go a long way, actually. And then there's something that's even simpler. <laughs> Stop spending so much time looking at this stuff. <laughs> you know, I always have to laugh when I say that um, because people seem to think that they have no option in that. You have all kinds of options in that. I don't have those news feeds on my smartphone. Uh, why would I? If I want to know that stuff, I'll go check. Right. Whether whether it's an addiction or they're actually thinking they're being responsible by keeping up with the news. I saw that you were on the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast mm -hmm. hosted by Stephen Novella. Should we all start listening? Is that part of the, the answer to, to get us to, to begin questioning what's really a, going on? I'm a big advocate of um, several of those groups. Um, uh, they, they do a really good job. So. Uh, yes, is the answer to that one. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much for joining us on the show. And, and what, what's the next book that we should be looking forward to? What are your research hours focused on at the time? I'm right now deciding uh, what I'm going to do about that, but I'm certainly going to do something on uh, kind of the new uh, uh, developments in the culture of fear. Things have changed a lot even, even since I did the recent edition, the anniversary edition. Uh, so I'm certainly going to do some of that. Uh, and then beyond that, uh, I'm not sure yet, working it out. We are all watching as a family that we're behind the, the mark, but the Sherlock Holmes series and um, set in the modern day on PBS, Sherlock. And one of the things they said in the last episode was once an idea, and the whole, series, the whole episode was based on this, is placed in your mind, true or false, it's hard to get it out. So any last-minute advice on how we get rid of those ideas even once we know they're false? Yeah, and it's simpler than you might think. And I love that quote. I'm going to be stealing it. But um, there's, it's simpler than you think. Just say, I know it's in my mind. Now I've got to do something else with it. But it, it, the way I always point out to people is um, songs that are called earworms, you know, where you have right the lyric in your mind mm -hmm. and you can't get it out. I don't know what you do. What I do is I just start listening to a different listening song. To something else, yeah. Great. Well, right. thank you so much. It was a pleasure having you speaking with you today. Thank you very much.